Okay, so we are now in Matthew's Gospel. We're starting. We finished Daniel a little while ago, and we've had a few weeks in between. Now we begin Matthew's Gospel. If you're uh, visiting or new, then you have, you've arrived at sort of ground zero. This is where we begin. Chapter 1, verse 1. If you want to know what's going to happen at the end of this book, then hang around for a couple of years, and we'll get to chapter 28. So that's the plan. We're going to move through verse by verse. We're not going to avoid passages or issues that we find difficult. We're just going to unravel and unpack every single part of this glorious book as we go through it in the coming weeks, months, and quite possibly years. Um, as we begin Matthew's Gospel, if you need a Bible, you'll find them, the, the pew Bibles of the same version that I'm using uh, in front of you. If there's not one in front of you, then just reach behind. There'll be one behind you. But uh, we, we're using the Legacy Standard Bible here, and all, all the pew Bibles are the same. Um, so as we begin in Matthew's Gospel, normally the first uh, sermon in a series on a book is incredibly boring. And, um, you know, you're like told who wrote it, when they wrote, why they wrote it, and all of it. You get, it's kind of more of a lecture. And I, and I want to spare you that, so I'm going to tell you the bare bones, and then we can progress. Because I think that's really what we, we want to do pro- predominantly. So, um, Matthew, we're going to see him in chapter 9. He is a tax collector who becomes a disciple of Jesus, one of the twelve. And it is believed in church history, though we're not told clearly here, that he is the one who wrote this gospel. Most scholars today believe that Mark was written first and Matthew later. I'm one of the few who still believe, as most did in church history, that Matthew was written first. But we'll save that debate for another day as well. What is important for us to understand is this, who he was writing to. Now, we're going to see this again and again and again and again, proven without a shadow of a doubt that Matthew is writing his gospel to Jewish people, to Jewish people. Another possible reason for an early date in that the church initially would have been predominantly Jewish. He's writing to a Jewish audience. We see this in a multitude of different ways. He he often tells us um, things that would only be of interest to Jews, Um, the dispute over temple tax. Why is the Gentile going to care about that? You know, that kind of thing. But I think also it's more what he doesn't say. He presumes that his readers have an understanding not only of Mosaic law, not only of Jewish custom, but of the Pharisaical interpretation of Mosaic law. And in fact, that's going to be a battleground as we go through Matthew. Again and again and again, Jesus is going to clash with the Jewish leaders over their interpretation of the law, and they get it wrong, and he's going to show them how it should have been understood. And so we're going to see that conflict come right the way through. So this Jewish audience, um, and you know, we taught Mark, Uh, Mark's gospel in the evenings a few years back and that is a predominantly Gentile gospel and this one we're going to see the Jewish flavor of it coming through again and again and again and again Um, and that begins right from the very beginning so let's have a look at the first verse when you see this long genealogy you're like oh 
I wish, I wish I'd come a different week. Well, you're all right. You can skip it. That's next week. But, but let me tell you this. There is so much rich goodness in that genealogy that we're going to unpack for you. And you will understand it in a way that you have perhaps not before. So we'll, we'll do that. So let's, let's begin in verse 1. Actually, last thing I want to say before we get into verse 1 is this. Um, and this is more for those of you who've been in the faith for a while. Typically, the way that even in our circles with expository preaching, verse by verse through the Bible, even in our circles, when people teach Gospels, they tend to harmonize. And what I mean by that is that when Matthew says something, then Mark may have said the same thing in a different way, and Luke may have said the same thing in a different way, and maybe even John said it as well in a different way. And so what they tend to do is just go, and just suck all those versions together, all those Gospels together, and then just spew out this kind of harmonized version. In other words, when they teach for example, Matthew, you're getting taught Mark and Luke and John wherever they collide. I am not going to do that. Matthew has to stand alone. Matthew is a book. It is a gospel. And it is not presumed that you have a copy of Mark or Luke or John next to you while you read Matthew. Because for most of history, that wouldn't have been the case. So we're not going to say, uh, you know, it wasn't as if Matthew, while writing his gospel, said, I don't worry about that, Mark will cover it. He told you what he wanted you to know, he showed you what he wanted you to see, and he left out, and this is the crucial part, what he wanted to leave out. And as the years go by, I become more and more fascinated by what gospel writers leave out. That is as important sometimes as what they put in. I'll give you one little example of that, just as a throwaway. Um, John's gospel, John, right from the beginning of his gospel, talks about the theme of glory. Glory, glory, glory. It's one of the major themes in John's gospel. The, the glory of Jesus Christ. He talks about it throughout the gospel. It becomes a major theme. And right at the beginning, when he introduces that theme, he says, he says that we beheld his glory. And I've heard a hundred different sermons where people at that point in John 1, 14, 15 and that section where they, they hear that verse, we beheld his glory and they, they teach that John is referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. But what is the only gospel that doesn't mention the Mount of Transfiguration? John's gospel. So who, who went up the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, John was one of the very few who did. Only three disciples went up and John was one of them. And yet he's the only one in his Gospels who doesn't mention it. That has to be significant. And the the short story, spoiler alert, is that the reason he doesn't do that is because for John, Jesus lifting the veil, as it were, and then seeing a glorified Christ is not the theme that he's trying to talk about, but rather the glory of Jesus is seen at the cross, which is why in John 12, when Judas goes out to betray Jesus and begin the events that we call the passion, the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ... Jesus then says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
John doesn't want you getting distracted by Jesus shining on top of a mountain. He wants you to see the glory of Christ on the cross where he shows and expresses the character of God with the greatest clarity and thus God is glorified through him redeeming us through the blood of his son. See, there's always a reason why stuff's left out as much as why it's put in. So when we embark on Matthew's gospel, we will be looking at what Matthew says, not what the others say. The one exception to that rule, as you will see next week, is that sometimes when other, other gospels mention something, there's a reason for a difference. Like I say, a reason that something has been omitted, a reason that something's been expressed a different way. And then those occasions, we will maybe compare them, not to get additional information, not for us to just harmonize and then say, here's the message by combining these gospels, but rather to say, now let's, let's see why this is different. So next week, when we do the genealogy, we're going to look and we're going to see uh, Luke's genealogy very briefly as well, and they are completely different. And we're going to work out why, and we're going to have a look at that next time. Okay, so verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus here is described in three different ways. One is a summary and two are the two parts of that summary. Jesus is called the Christ. Now most of you will know this, but I can never tell. You might, you might not know this. So let me just say, state the obvious. That is not his surname. He did not come from a family of Christ's. His dad was not Mr. Christ and he didn't become Jesus Christ. It is not a name. It is a title. Family, he would have been known as Jesus Ben Joseph. That's how he would have been known, because his father, or as we're going to see as we progress, more accurately, his stepfather was, was Joseph, Ben meaning the son of. So what, what we mean by Jesus Christ is that that is a title, and the word Christ is the Greek word that is equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. It literally means anointed one. And the idea of the Messiah begins in Genesis 3 and verse 15. Now, we're going to do a lot of flicking today. So those of you with phones might find it easier because you get there quicker. But those of you who want to find your way around your Bible, you're going to be in for a treat. So let's turn to Genesis 3. And let's begin our journey there. And you're going to see this a lot in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew uses the Old Testament a lot. He quotes it a lot. There is much that's said in the commentaries about Matthew using the word fulfill. This has been fulfilled, the completing of so much through Jesus Christ. And there are all these quotation formulas. But Matthew alludes to the Old Testament a lot. But I think what's probably even more significant than Matthew quoting the Old Testament, Matthew alluding, sort of nudging us to the Old Testament, even more significant than that is just the presumption that he would have that his readers knew the Old Testament. And so, um, you know, no offense, but I'm figuring we probably don't know our Old Testament as well as we should. So we're going to be going into the Old Testament a lot to get this kind of background information that it is presumed by Matthew that we already have. So in Genesis 3 and verse 15, if you have a pew Bible, I think you'll find that's page 4. When, um, when we've had the fall of man, there is the cursing of the serpent in verse 14. And he says this, because you have done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than every beast of the field. 
on your belly you will now go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. From this one verse, verse 15, there is the seed, if you pardon the pun, of the entire theology of the Messiah. This is where it begins. That the serpent has, has led humanity through temptation into sin. But he will not be the victor. He will be destroyed. The curse is upon him. And the woman will have a seed, a descendant, and that descendant shall bruise the serpent on the head. That would be a fatal wound. And you, the serpent, shall bruise him, that's the seed of the woman, on the heel. There will be a wounding, but it will not be as bad, as permanent, as, as ending. And we see that ultimately, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. we see that ultimately fulfilled in the cross. I think what is important to note here is, is just what an amazing statement this is in the context of Genesis 3. What was it that was promised to, to mankind if they ate from that fruit in the garden? They could eat any of the trees, any they liked. They were all declared to be good. But there's that one tree, the knowledge of, of good and evil, which we've spoken about quite a bit recently in various sermons and in our midweek studies in Romans. Um, the important thing for us to note there is simply this, that the tree of a knowledge of good and evil is God declaring what is good and evil. God creates this day, everything's good. He creates this, it's good. He creates that, it's good. God declares it to be good. Here's your fruit. It's all the fruit from these trees. It's good. And then in Genesis 3, verse 6, the woman sees the forbidden fruit, and it looked good for food. She is taking the role of God. She is the one determining now what is good and evil. We see that in the world today, don't we? Where people just... They, they, they will be the determiners of what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. They have taken the place of God. And the thing that was promised, if she would eat from that fruit, if mankind would eat from that fruit, was what? Death. Death is the guarantee. That's the promise. And now what's God saying in verse 15? You're going to have offspring. Do we not see the mercy of God in that? If the second that she picked up that fruit and taken the first bite, she had dropped down dead, that would have been absolutely fair and just. But even then, God has mercy in that he extends the life of the man and the woman so that they will be able to have offspring and that they would be able to continue the role that God had given to mankind to fill the earth with his glory. Adam and Eve had sort of kingly roles. They were, they were given dominion over the earth. They were to rule over the earth in place of God. That they were to be the ones that would be able to rule on his behalf. We've spoken at length in the past about delegated authority. And they had delegated authority. They were royal rulers in a sense. But there is one that is going to come from them who will end the work of the serpent. There's one who's going to come who is going to redeem. And that promise develops. It develops throughout the Bible. When 
When God wipes out the earth with a flood, he shows his mercy again in preserving this family to continue. And then the next step again, we go on, we have the Tower of Babel and God again preserves mankind, though he separates them into nations and on we go. And immediately after that in Genesis 12, we have the coming of Abraham. We're going to talk about him a little bit later and we'll turn there in a bit because he comes up in our verse in a while. But Abraham is given promises, and it's clear that the the seed is going to come through the nation that God is going to create through Abraham. What becomes clear in the the Genesis narrative is that that seed will come through Isaac, the the chosen son, and not through Ishmael, the firstborn. And then the seed will come through Jacob and not through the firstborn of Esau. And then at the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 49, we learn that ultimately the royal rule will come through the tribe of Judah. Now then, a little bit later, and you can turn there with me to 1 Chronicles um, 17, which is what Jenny read for us this morning. I always prefer her reading the Bible to me. 1 Chronicles 17, page 569 on the Pew Bibles. In 1 Chronicles 17, we have one of two passages in the Bible where David receives a visit from Nathan. In fact, there's other passages where he receives a visit from Nathan. Uh, The the conflict uh, between those two men over the issue of Bathsheba and David's sin is obviously another one. But we have two times where uh, Nathan comes to David and makes a promise of a covenant. In verse 7, So now thus... Shall you say to me, that's page 570 turning over now. You shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies, mighty Yahweh, sovereign ruler. I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. So David's going to become king. And I have been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed again. And the unrighteous will not waste them anymore as formerly. So it seems that in that verse, we're having a description of Israel being being placed, and they would not be disturbed again. Was Israel a nation under David? Oh, yes. Was it powerful? Yes. Were they disturbed? Did unrighteousness ever come into their midst again? Did they ever leave the land again? Oh, yes, the Babylonian captivity. But then they go back. Oh, wonderful, we have the land again. Now is the time when we're undisturbed. Oh, is it? We're going to see in Matthew's gospel that that's clearly not the case. That the Jews of Jesus' day are going to come under judgment. They're going to come under judgment because of their rejection of their king. More of that in a moment. But when we see this, we know that the time where Israel will be in the land and they will be undisturbed, they won't be disturbed again dwelling in that place, has not yet happened. You say, well, they're in the land now. Maybe, maybe they won't be disturbed from, from this point onwards. Well, firstly, our studies in Daniel showed us that wasn't the case. And secondly, they're certainly not righteous right now because the vast majority of them reject the Messiahship of Jesus. But in verse 10, even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, 
and I will subdue all your enemies, and I'll tell, I will tell you that Yahweh will build a house for you. It will be that when your days are fulfilled to go to be with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will be one of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. Now this is where it's important and we have to pay attention. Firstly, notice how this is glorious, how the whole of this passage where Jenny read from the beginning of the chapter for us is about how David wanted to build a house for Yahweh and now what's Yahweh doing? I'm going to build a house for you. Isn't that just the heart of God? We want to serve him, and all he wants to do is bless us more. But David is going to have his house built, and that's a play on words. It's not a literal house. He's going to have a, he already had a palace. It's, it's a house in the sense of a dynasty, what we would call a dynasty. Oh, you say dynasty, don't you? Sorry. My bilingualness is not on, on par always. But a, a, what you, dynasty. Yeah, dynasty. Okay. Sorry. The English in me. It's not going to go ever. Um, The dynasty of David is going to be built up. That's the house that is going to be built. And he says that after you go, I'm going to raise up one of your seed. Now that's really important because that is the repetition of the same word from Genesis 3.15. The seed. I'm going to raise up one of your seed after you who will be one of your sons. Now you think sons, you're thinking, well, well we use the word sons to mean sort of literally an immediate child that comes from us. But in fact, the word in Hebrew can be used to simply mean descendant. It's used of grandsons and further on. So that's not necessarily the case. And then he says, he shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me, and I will not remove my loving kindness from him as I removed it from him who was before you. Can you see the feel of eternality here? The throne will be established forever. The father-son relationship, that although he will be a descendant of David, that God will be his father, but I will cause him to stand in my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. When you read that, you know he is speaking of the seed. The seed line that has come through Adam and Eve, through the survivors of the flood, Noah and his family, then down the line through to Abraham and through that nation of Israel, and then through Isaac and then through Jacob and then through the tribe of Judah, that now we know that the seed is going to come from the family, the dynasty, I got it right that time, of David. The dynasty of David. That's where Messiah is going to come from. And this one will be a king like David. His throne will be established and he will rule. Now, we won't turn there because I don't want to waste too much time, but there is a parallel passage to this in 1 Samuel. And in that passage, Nathan comes and he brings a a promise, a prophecy, a covenant, and it is almost identical except for two things. Firstly, we're told that the son is going to come from his loins, which is a fairly euphemistic and obvious way of saying it will be his direct descendant and not further down the line. And secondly, that this descendant will sin, but he will be forgiven and the promise won't pass because of his sin, clearly referring to Solomon. So what we have is two prophecies making covenant with David, 
promising that his Davidic line will have a kingdom that will last forever. And in one sense, that's going to come through his immediate descendant, then through Solomon. In one sense, it's in the immediate physical realm. And then in another sense, there is going to be this seed where there's no mention of sin, there's no mention of direct descendancy, and that clearly speaks of the coming Messiah. Now, that, that duality, as it were, that David the king is going to rule and reign, and he'll have sons, and they will rule and reign, but then there is this final son, this final descendant, this one who comes from David who is going to be the king who will rule and reign forever, that that duality then takes us into the Psalms. Let's move ahead to Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. Again, if you're in your pew Bible, I think the the pages are the same, and that would be 731. The first two psalms go together as a package. We presume that they're psalms of David. They don't specifically say so. There's good reasons for us to think so. But the fact that they are, they are unmarked means that they stand together, the two of them, the first two psalms, as the introduction and foundation to the whole of the rest of the book of the psalms. Many of you will be familiar with Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And apart from those of you who were here a couple of years ago when I preached it, most of you probably have heard Psalm 1 as being a psalm suggesting that you should be that kind of person. Well, that's a fairly good commendation, and that's something that you should aim to be. But let's be clear, this passage is speaking of one particular person the Messiah. And that's, by the way, what the entire book of Psalms is predominantly about. It's predominantly about the Messiah. And he is one who doesn't walk in the counsel of wicked, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, listen, we need to understand right from the beginning of the Psalms, this parallelism. David was a king. David was a righteous king. Broadly speaking, yes, some major mess-ups, but broadly speaking, he was one of the good kings. And he, according to Deuteronomy 17, one of the things he had to do when he became king is he had to write out the law. Now, he didn't have photocopiers in those days. They couldn't Xerox it. They weren't able to go to a printer's and have them printed off. And so they were, they were written out. The king, according to Deuteronomy 17, had to literally write himself his own personal copy of the law because as king, he darn well needed to know it. And it's on his law that he meditates day and night. I think, by the way, that the capital H in the Legacy Bible is a mistranslation. I think the his refers to, to David in part. But you could argue for the capital H because there is already this parallel in that there is going to be another king that comes after him and this king does deserve a capital H because this king is God and it is his law in the sense that he wrote it in the first place. He doesn't need to write it out again. And you see that sort of parallel as we go. Now, 
When we come to Psalm 2, this becomes even more apparent. Why do the nations rage and the people meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. The rage of the people is against two individuals. Yahweh, God, and his anointed. Anointed, remember, is the meaning of Messiah. They are opposed to Yahweh and his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Don't you tell us what to do. We'll do what we want. The sin of the Garden of Eden has never gone away, has it? People wanting to live life by their own rules rather than God dictating to us how we should live as the one who gives us life. And so the nations are opposed to Yahweh and his anointed. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. He speaks to them in his anger. He terrifies in his fury. And he says this, verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, immediately as we come into the Psalms, we have the presentation of the Messiah, the seed, the king. There's no confusion over what we're speaking about here. And this one who is Messiah, the one who will defeat the devil, he is the king and he will be installed on the holy mountain of God. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so there is the declaration of this one not only being Messiah, not only being king, but also being the son of God. And this one, who is all of those three things, is told, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance And the ends of the earth is your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. That's going to be the end for anybody who is opposed to Christ when he takes his rule upon the earth. So now, O kings, show insight. In other words, don't be daft. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Kiss the son. The worship of the son, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the worship of him is paralleled with the worship of God. You reject him, you reject God. I'm sick of hearing people say, Oh, I believe in God, but uh, I don't really, you know, not, not Jesus. Well, this is going to be key in Matthew for the Jewish people. You reject the Messiah, then you've rejected God. You're outside of his kingdom. Kiss the son, lest you become angry and you perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so we go through the Psalms, and again and again we worship God And then we see this Messiah, this coming king, who is to be worshipped too. He is distinct from God, and yet he is God. And we go right the way through the Psalms, and this, this dualism, this parallelism between David, literally the king, and this coming king, who is the descendant of David, 
that these two things are paralleled. Take, for example, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who is being spoken of here? David or Jesus? And the answer is yes. That's the answer. Because the first Samuel and first Chronicle parallels have set us up to see both David and the son of David constantly paralleling through the Psalms. Now this is all the background that we need to have coming into Matthew's Gospel. Why? Because right from the off we're told this to the Jewish audience that this that we're about to tell you is the genealogy, the record, show, proving who this man is. And he is Jesus, and he is the Messiah. And as the Messiah, he is the long-promised descendant of David. He is going to be the king that needs to be kissed and adored in worship, lest his wrath fall upon you. He is the one who will establish his kingdom that will last forever. He is the one that the enemies of God and the nations will try and break free from, but will not be able to. He is the one with the right to rule and reign. He is the one whom the Jews have been waiting for. That's who he is. Declared right at the beginning. Verse 1. Do you know there are some people out there who seem to think that Jesus didn't, you know, that the Bible doesn't make it clear that Jesus was the Messiah? I mean, how far have we got in Matthew? One verse, boom, there he is. He's the Messiah and he's the son of David. And secondly, or thirdly, I suppose if you count Christ, he is also the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now that seems at first glance a little bit of a a taking a step backwards. We've already seen, haven't we? That there's this promised line, there is going to be this seed of the woman, that's Eve. And we go through and we have this line, and then it's clear that the promise has to come through Noah, because everyone else has been killed in the flood, has to come through the line of Noah. Then it's clear, once the nations are divided, that God's going to raise up his own nation, the nation of Israel, through Abraham. He's going to come through Abraham, and then through Isaac and Jacob, and then we get through to David, and we'll talk about something even after that, maybe next time when we deal with the genealogy. So when we come to him being the son of David, he is the seed in that promised line. We've already, we've already bypassed Abraham. We've already been, been past him. Wouldn't it make more sense to say he's Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, that he is the son of Abraham, we get there first, and then the son of David? That way, when I was going through that in Genesis, I could have taken you to Genesis 12, we could have done Abraham, and then we could have moved on to David, and that would have made things a lot easier. But there's a reason why son of Abraham comes next. There's a reason why son of Abraham comes next. Let's turn to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, page 14 of the Pew Bibles. And so God is dividing the world into nations. There's much more we could say about that, but we'll avoid that rabbit trail today. And we come to chapter 12, and God is going to raise up his own nation. And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land, from your kin, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. 
and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay. There are two separate and distinct things going on here. In fact, with the covenant of Abram, there's three distinct things going on. But in here, clearly, there are two distinct things. That Abraham is going to, on the one hand, have a particular nation that's going to come from him. That's the seed line. And that's one of the promises to Abraham. Abraham was promised seed, one of the three things. He was promised land, the second of the three things. And the third thing he was promised was blessing. Now look how it shifts in the latter part of verse 3 with regards to blessings. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you I will curse. So he's going to be a blessing, end of verse 2. And there seems to be a contingency here. That those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. The used there in the original become plural. And that's why I think it's very dangerous. You know, anti-Semitism is something straight from, straight from Satan. He loathes the Jews. Cursing is for those who curse them. But blessing is for those who bless them. And ultimately, through Abraham, all the families... Not just nations, but families of the earth will be blessed. All the dynasties, see I'm getting the hang of it now, dynasty. The dynasties of the world are going to be blessed through Abram. Now, how is that going to be? That's going to be, as Paul picks up in the, gospel, uh, in, in the epistle to the Romans, Paul picks up and talks about Abraham's seed, being singular and being Christ, and how through him all the nations of the world are blessed. You say, well, I know that. How, do, how, how does that explain why Abraham becomes second? Let me, let me tell you really clearly. When we have Jesus Messiah, he is the son of David. Why is he the son of David? Because he's the Messiah. And what does that tell us about the Messiah? It tells us that he is the unique Jewish king. He is uniquely a Jew from the tribe of Judah, from the the dynasty of, nearly slipped there, of David. And that he is going to come as the chosen king to rule and reign. And the Jews knew that they had a king coming, and they knew that he he was going to bring a kingdom. If you're a Jew, and you're living at the time of Matthew's gospel... This is, I believe, prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's in the time before, exactly where we can debate over another time, exactly uh, what date. But it is before the destruction of a temple. And if you are evangelizing Jews, if you are trying to tell the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah, what are they going to say to you? They're going to say, well, if he's the king, where's the kingdom? Where's world peace? Where's the lion lying down with the lamb? Doesn't seem much of a king to me. And so Matthew is going to speak to these Jews and he tells them straight off, he is the king. He is the son of David. He is that one. And he is going to prove to the Jews through this gospel that Jesus is that king. And he'll answer that question, what about the kingdom? We're going to be dealing with that really heavily, chapters 12 and 13, when we see the Jews' rejection of Jesus' Messiahship and Jesus shifting 
tactics, as it were, changing how he, his ministry is going to function as a result of that rejection from chapter 13. And so the son of David speaks to the Jewish people that this is their promised king, that they should bow before and kiss him, lest he be angry. But son of Abraham contains within it the promise that all the families of the world will be blessed. And what Matthew's gospel does, while speaking predominantly to a Jewish audience, is he lets them know that the gospel is going to be going to the Gentiles. You see, we start here at the beginning. We're going to, I'm going to do a spoiler here for you, because we're going to turn to the end of Matthew's gospel. All right? But you'd have forgotten it in two years' time. Don't worry. So let's, let's turn to Matthew 28. Because when we begin, we see the Jewish Messiah, son of David, and we see a reference to Abraham who was promised that he would bless all nations and the families throughout the earth. And then this very Jewish gospel, halfway through, about chapter 12, the Jews reject Jesus And then the gospel starts to more and more go out to Gentiles. We have parables about parties being thrown and people not attending. And so others, vagabonds being being brought in to enjoy the feast that was prepared for others. And there is this, this kind of directing of the gospel, letting the Jews know that their Messiah is for everybody. And then when we have the very end of Matthew's gospel, how does it end? Verse 16 of Matthew 28. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Mountain, by the way, is significant. Mountain, Psalm 2. We'll leave that one for another day as well. But anyway, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came up and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the Jews. Go take this Jewish Messiah to Jewish people. No, no, no. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so as we get into Matthew's gospel properly next week, we're going to look at this genealogy. Trust me, I know it looks like it's going to be a horrible, it's going to be a good sermon. Okay, it's a a really important passage for lots of reasons, and it'll be a lot of fun to go through it. But as we get into it next week, we're going to see this Jewish Messiah being presented to the Jewish people, but his own will reject him. And the gospel will go ultimately out to all nations. And I know, you guys, we have people from all over the world. We have people who've come from Asia, from South America, from Europe, from, from various places, different languages. I think there's at least sort of six or seven languages represented in this room, if we count English and American as different. I, I like to think I'm bilingual, so we'll have that as two languages. But, but there's, there's so many different nations, and this gospel, though it was written to the Jews, 
is a gospel for us. And as we see him going and presenting their Messiah to them, there will be things that we can learn and we can be blessed by all the way through. Why? Because he's our Messiah too. And on that note, I think it would be good for us to come to his table and to rejoice in the salvation that goes out to all nations in the name of the Son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we come now to your table, may we be reminded again of your glorious gospel, how for each one of us there is the promise of salvation when we place our trust in you. No need to be circumcised, no need to take upon ourselves the law of Moses, but those who are far off have been brought near, and each and every one of us can come and can receive from him, simply by coming in faith. Lord, as we now come to your table, convict us in our hearts of any outstanding sin, lest we come presumptuously. But embolden us, Lord, that we wouldn't feel that our sin would disqualify us, knowing that this represents salvation and forgiveness for sinners like us. Father, forgive us for our sin. And may we come now grateful and rejoicing in the shed blood of your Son. Amen. Thank you.